Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're only a few months into this show and we're shaping it with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Today, I'm talking with Representative Val Demings of Florida. Before heading to Congress, Demings spent 27 years as a law enforcement officer, and she climbed the ranks to become Orlando's first female chief of police in 2007. Last year, she continued making history, becoming one of the first women and Black Americans to prosecute a presidential impeachment before the U.S. Senate. Representative Demings, great to have you with us. It is great to be with you. So you have had quite a season. Um, We've had quite a season in America, and you have been out in front looking at um, questions of impeachment, the former president. How did you prepare to lead the impeachment trial against uh, former President Donald Trump in 2020? It was a get up early, go to bed late. We spent days and weekends, as you can imagine, preparing to make sure that we had all of the information in a chronological order uh, that we were ready to present before uh, the U.S. Senate. We made sure under the leadership of Adam Chiff and Jerry Nadler that we were prepared. And, you know, I stayed very focused. Um, It was about accountability. And I love to say everybody counts, but everybody's accountable up to Mm. and including the president of the United States. And so we made sure that we were prepared so we could prevent the best case. And I do believe we presented a case that was clear and convincing with overwhelming evidence against uh, the former president of the United States. The former president, although he was impeached, he was not sanctioned, removed from office. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell, after the second um, set of impeachment hearings, went on a tirade against the president, but said, oh, there's nothing we can do, even though he could have called the Senate back into session if the timing was an issue. Do you have a sense of regret or missed opportunity from the impeachment process? Anybody who was watching television or listening, paying attention at all to what occurred at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, I was there. I was trapped in the House gallery with about 30 other of my colleagues. Um, Hmm. We know that the president clearly incited the riot and the attack at the U.S. Capitol. And so, you know, initially I was encouraged by um, Leader McConnell's comments basically holding the president accountable, but somehow he lost his courage. He lost his nerve. He lost his integrity along the way and, and refused to lead the effort in removing the president, uh, from power. And, you know, to say, well, we don't have enough days. Really? Um, I've never, as a law enforcement officer, said, well, you know what, it's too close 
to the end of my shift. So I'm going to let this uh, armed burglar go because it's time for me to go home or whatever, you know. And, and so it's, it's absolutely shameful. Uh, the decisions that was made by Mitch McConnell, the Senate's failure yet again uh, to hold uh, the president accountable. But the American people and, and quite sadly, the world knows because the world saw it with their own eyes and heard it with their own ears. The president leading the effort, encouraging people to attack the U.S. Capitol. And boy, did they uh, take what he said to heart. You co-sponsored Representative Cory Bush's resolution to hold fellow lawmakers accountable for participating in the insurrection. What do you think accountability looks like? What would be the ideal situation, aside from what you think is possible, what would you like to see? Well, you know, our laws, we, we have internal policies, and certainly as a former chief of police, you know, there were times when we had officers who it, uh, violated our internal policies, our rules and regulations. But along with those come the laws of the land. And so if it's discovered that members of Congress violated House rules or regulations or policies in some way that were non-criminal, then we need to utilize those processes in place and in-house to deal with them, which could be censure or removing them from their committees or other administrative actions like that. But if it's discovered that they violated criminal law, then they should be held accountable in our criminal justice system. You know, Mm -hmm. I I said it during the impeachment trial, and I'll say it again, uh, no one is above the law. You know, we spend a lot of time focusing on our foreign uh, adversaries, and we should, but there's no greater attack And the FBI confirmed our biggest threat just happens to be domestic terrorism. And Mm. boy, did we see the domestic terrorists show up at the Capitol that day. People lost their lives. We saw, among many other moments of cognitive dissonance, um, people who were insurgents using the Blue Lives Matter flag to attack police officers. And one of the things that we're finding out is that During the Trump administration, white-led extremist groups, which were domestic terrorist cells, were not classified or tracked particularly well, and it was not viewed as a priority. What can you do in your role in Congress to help ensure that there is appropriate attention to the different groups that participate in undermining American democracy? Well, I appreciate that question. And look, you know, uh, back in the day, my parents and grandparents dealt with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, they may change their n- names, but uh, what they believe in is still the same. They're full of hate. They're full of violence. Um, and they will attack and injure and kill uh, people who are not like them. And so the bottom line is that we as a nation need to put more resources into combating uh, white supremacy domestic terrorism, and hate crimes. And so we need to make sure that our federal, local, and state law enforcement agencies have the resources that they need to be adequately able to monitor, identify, and investigate those who fall within these groups. 
I want you to take me inside, you know, kind of how you think and process the world. You've had such a fascinating career arc, so many roles of leadership. There is a lot going on with the perception of police. And you, as a Black woman, such long leadership in law enforcement, how do you process this moment in time and what is the role of policing? You know, I so appreciate that question. And let me just say, um, I spent a lot of years in law enforcement. Uh, Before that, I served as a social worker dealing with um, abused children and families who needed emergency services. I took my social worker's heart to the job of law enforcement. And so I realized we had to do two things. We had to arrest bad people, those who hurt innocent people. But we also had to deal with those quality of life issues that cause decay in communities uh, in the first place. During my time in law enforcement, I worked with some of the most professional, some of the most courageous men and women of all colors uh, during my time there. But we do know, uh, especially, and I, I think the death of George Floyd has really put a spotlight on uh, what's wrong in policing, and it should be, because we want to get it right. You know, what happened to George Floyd was brutal, it was senseless, and it was murder. And the persons responsible should be and are being held accountable. But I also want to make it clear that no great society can exist without law enforcement. You know, as someone who has walked and talked with people uh, in Central Florida, in Orlando, it's interesting. People who live in the most uh, vulnerable communities and the most crime-ridden communities uh, say they don't want us to defund the police They want to see more police because they know if funds are taken away, then they feel like resources will be taken away from their communities. They just want police officers that treat them with dignity and respect, officers who are well-trained and professional. We all should want that. You know, I'd love to quote the words of uh, former Dallas police chief uh, David Brown. He's now the commissioner in Chicago. But he says... Every time there is a societal failure, we call the police uh, to solve it. Not enough mental health counseling available. Give it to the police. Not enough drug addiction treatment funds available. Let the police handle it. Schools fail. Call the police. They'll take care of it. You know, when did we start calling the police when a middle schooler won't sit down in her seat or won't give up her phone? And so it's not about taking resources away from the police, but it's about being serious about funding those programs that address quality of life issues that cause decay in communities in the first place. And so just wrapping up, as you are thinking about what impact you want to leave behind, what kind of an America do you want to see emerge from, you know, these turbulent years that we're in right now? I grew up uh, in Florida. I am uh, the youngest of seven children. My mother was a maid and my father was a janitor. I watched my parents work hard every day. But when it was time to vote, they would dress up and head to the polls, knowing that their vote mattered, just like the richest family in town. I cannot remember a time they did not vote. I look at my own life and because of the hard work they did for me and for our family, my siblings, uh, we've been able to do some amazing things. I feel a direct responsibility and obligation to make sure that every boy and girl 
who looks like me and those who don't look like me, that they have a chance to live the American dream just as I have. Representative Demings, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was Congresswoman Val Demings, Democratic representative for Florida's 10th District. This month, lawmakers in Virginia and New Mexico legalized recreational marijuana, joining 15 other states in Guam. How are states regulating this booming billion-dollar industry? Diana Huenu is the chair of the Cannabis Regulatory Commission in New Jersey. Two-thirds of voters there approved a ballot measure last November to legalize the use of cannabis. Huenu says social equity is a huge part of her mission on the regulatory board. Welcome, Diana. Thank you for having me, Farai. I've been to conferences, including ones by the Drug Policy Alliance, which has long looked at the questions of how equity and racial justice fit into drug policy in America. Before we get into New Jersey, can you give us a little bit of a sense of how these issues fit together? So when we look at our drug policy, mass incarceration and unnecessary entanglements in the criminal justice system really have deep roots in the drug war. And the drug war was deliberately constructed in order to disrupt and uh, stigmatize people of color, and particularly Black communities. And so really, we see the effects now that have left in their wake, nothing but devastation. We talk about cannabis and marijuana In New Jersey, Blacks are three times more likely to be arrested than whites for cannabis possession, despite similar usage rates. And with an arrest can come a whole host of collateral consequences. Um, We're talking about pulling people out of the workforce and preventing them from getting a job in the future. And so these are things that affect not just an individual who's arrested, but these are things that affect an entire family and whole communities. This is a move by New Jersey that comes through a ballot initiative, and 67% of citizens who voted decided it should be legalized. Does it have any impact that this was a ballot initiative decision, um, or is it kind of irrelevant to what happens next? Um, I don't think it's entirely irrelevant. Now, in New Jersey, we, we did fight for a number of years to get this done through legislation. But, you know, when that wasn't possible, the legislature then turned to the ballot and let the voters decide whether to legalize cannabis for adults or not. In a resounding voice, they, they said yes. And it's my vision as chair of the Cannabis Regulatory Commission that the path that we go down is one that centers on equity. What does that mean specifically? So it means making sure that we are um, educating people about the opportunities that are available, business ownership opportunities, but also job opportunities. If you want to work in the industry, so for example, you might have photographers that specialize in photographing cannabis flowers and buds security companies, IT companies that meet the unique needs of this industry. And we want our, you know, our communities that have been 
disproportionately impacted and disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs. We want them to have access to the economic benefits that are going to come with this new industry that we're building from the ground up. What about research that shows that using marijuana may not be great for younger adults? The mind is still sort of growing into its final form in its early 20s. And there are are going to be people who will legally be able to buy cannabis without looking at something like a prohibition. How do you examine all of the different scientific sides, including the sides showing that cannabis can be beneficial for PTSD, anxiety, and and other medical conditions? Well, it's important for us to be honest and to be transparent with what the facts show. Cannabis advocates know that uh, what the evidence shows about cannabis having a potentially negative impact on developing brains, which is why we have been pushing to make sure that we're talking about legalizing this plant for adults only, not for young people. I am not necessarily encouraging people to to use cannabis, but rather we want to make sure that if you are using cannabis, that it is regulated product that has gone through strict testing and quality control measures, and that you have all of the health information that you need in order to make a decision about whether you choose to engage in cannabis use or not. I expect that as more states are legalizing cannabis, There's less of what's called cannabis tourism, you know, and especially now during a pandemic where people would travel to Colorado or, you know, Nevada or California to buy cannabis um, or use cannabis. First of all, do you see this as a revenue winner for the state? And secondly, is that part of the math in addition to these ethical and legal questions about, you know, whether it should be legal and whether people should be arrested and jailed for it? As more and more states start to build their own legalized, regulated industry, there is an expectation that it has an impact on this cannabis tourism. But there's still a lot to be gained here for for states and using some of the revenue that's generated to do some affirmative good in communities. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, we're really talking about taking this money and reinvesting in the future of our communities. And so, yes, there is certainly money to be made in this new industry, but uh, where the state then puts those dollars, I think is going to be um, speak volumes about its values and whether or not it is the state truly embodies racial justice here. Diana, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me, Farai. Diana Huenu is chair of New Jersey's Cannabis Regulatory Commission and senior policy advisor and associate counsel to state governor Phil Murphy. In Colorado, which legalized recreational marijuana in 2012, the industry made over $2 billion in annual sales for the first time last fall. Khadija Adams worked in real estate, computer tech, and retail before making it big in the Colorado cannabis market. I wanted to ask her, how did she know to invest in the business and how is she helping other women of color do the same? Welcome, Khadija. Thank you for having me. What do you think made you an entrepreneur? Well, I found out early on, Farai, that I am allergic to bosses. (laughs) (laughs) For the life of me, I, I just 
couldn't live by the eight to five and go to lunch at 12. And I kept asking him, you know, hell, what if I'm not hungry at 12? What if I don't want to wake up at eight o'clock or seven o'clock? What if, you know, so I really wanted to make my own hours. And I was raising four sons as a single mom. And, you know, I was already a statistic, if you will. And I just, I was tired. And I said, I wasn't going to do it anymore. I was not going to work for anybody else and on anybody else's dream. So I began working on my dream. And so why did you turn from the computer retail business, which you had been in, to cannabis? Well, when Colorado decided to legalize cannabis for recreation, recreational consumption, um, I knew that it would change the industry and it would change the direction of the industry. I also understood timing and positioning. I knew that if I could just get to Colorado and get in the industry, that I would have the the opportunity to create generational wealth for my family. And as an African-American woman who raised four African-American men or young boys to be men, you know, I believe that this industry was built on black and brown people's backs. And, and because of that, I, I feel like we should benefit. We should get in the industry, you know, whether we are business owners, entrepreneurs, investors, employees, I think it's necessary for us to position. So I decided to position and position for my family. So tell us the steps that you took with your business, because you have already moved on from what you first started. So tell us where you started in the cannabis industry Mm -hmm. and how you got to what you're doing now. I started investing in marijuana socks or penny socks, if you will. And I actually made some pretty good investments. My story got out there and I began speaking and teaching in the industry and helping other investors find viable investment opportunities. Then a friend of mine, she and I had a conversation. I said, hey, I want to turn this into a business because the majority of investors that I met, they didn't want to be seen in the industry. They wanted to remain silent and they wanted to remain private. And so I came up with Marijuana Investment and Private Retreat, um, or MIPR Holdings. And um, and we we started to, a friend of mine and I, um, she was the investor in the company, and I was the quote-unquote worker, if you will. And I decided to fly in accredited investors and introduce them to entrepreneurs who were raising capital. In 2017, shortly after my divorce was final, I sold MIPR Holdings to C.E. Hutton. And C.E. Hutton is a business development and management firm in Denver, Colorado. And I became one of the supermajority partners in the firm. So that's amazing. You were able to take your own firm, which you'd help build, and leverage it into a position on a larger firm. Absolutely. And, you know, I did have to, instead of me being the CEO, I was a COO and it was a great experience. I still work with CE Hutton, um, not in the daily operations, but I'm still the vice president and still one of the super majorities. Um, But I decided to branch off into my own business to help women. Tell us about that. and, And what's the organization that you're using for that? I formed Khadija Adams LLC. My DBA is Girl Get That Money. And um, (laughs) yeah, so it's Girl Get That Money. We are a business empowerment coaching and consultancy um, firm in this industry. And so we help women in business and women who are aspiring to be in business get positioned in this industry and or expand their business in this industry. And you also are the co-author of the Minority Report. 
Yeah, so the Minority Report, I co-authored that with C.E. Hutton, and that is an annual marketing analysis of minority-owned companies in the cannabis and hemp space. You know, I was looking at all these annual reports, and I didn't see minority businesses, and I'm like, well, we actually make up $1.38 trillion into this marketplace, so why aren't we there? And I couldn't get anybody to help me put it together. So I told CE, I said, well, hell, we we just got to put it together ourselves. And we did. There was a time when marijuana was legal in the U.S. and taxed. And when it was criminalized, it had a lot to do with race um, in terms of how it was framed as sort of like a Black menace to white society. Do you think that that level of racialized enforcement has carried into the legalization of marijuana, or is the legalization of marijuana helping to erase some of that pattern? I believe that the legalization is helping to erase it, but I also know that it was propaganda. When you start locking up Black and brown people and Asian people and connecting them to to marijuana and saying that they did this because of marijuana, then yeah, you create the stigma and um, look where it's gotten us. You know, we have neighborhoods that have been just destroyed by the war on drugs, the failed war on drugs. And then now you have white men, and let's be clear, because I say that unapologetically, you know, coming into the cannabis industry and taking over and not giving back to any of those communities. You know, now there may be some, but for the most part, they're not. And so that's why it's important for Black and brown people, African-Americans to get positioned in this industry. I think it's it's um, important. So there are Black people now in a whole bunch of different roles in the cannabis mm-hmm. industry. We spoke to Diana Way now, who's the chair of New Jersey State Cannabis Regulatory Commission. She talked to us about the duty that she feels governments have to reinvest the revenue from cannabis to right the wrongs of the war on drugs and the impact on communities of color. What do you think is possible there? I agree with her 100%. It's their responsibility because they too understand and know. I mean, they've seen how the war on drugs has affected our communities and how it's, you know, taken men and women away from their families and, and things of that nature. And so, yes, it's their obligation because now you are legalizing a plant that you criminalize and that you've locked people up, Black and brown people up for many, 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 many years. And guess what? Some of them are still locked up. And, and yet the, the communities are still going down further and further and further. And so I believe that, yes, it's their responsibility to step in, re-educate the communities and give back to these communities, provide education, provide all the resources they need to re-enter um, the workforce and to also expunge you know, these records, because, um, you know, let's just face the truth. The truth of the matter is the war on drugs demolished our neighborhoods and it demolished the men. When they got out of prison, they couldn't even get a job because of the stigma. And so I believe she's 100% right that the government as a whole should take on the responsibility to decriminalize cannabis altogether. Do you see the U.S., decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana, let's say in the next four to six years? I believe that it's going to happen with this administration that we have right now. The majority of the states will come on board because in the climate that we're living in right now, they understand that DEI is important for any industry to survive. Khadija Adams, thank you so much. Thank you. 
That was Khadija Adams, cannabis industry investor, motivational speaker, and founder of Girl Get That Money. We love to hear from our listeners, so every week we invite you to call the Speak Line. And right now we want to know, how did the pandemic change how you parent? As families prepare to send kids back to school and as we begin to imagine the return to something resembling normalcy, I want to know what you think has changed in your family after a year of such hardship and hard work in the home. To leave us your message, call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show for a Google form to respond in writing. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And joining me this week is Newsy reporter Casey Mendoza, Our Body Politics Business of Entertainment contributor. Hi, Casey. Hi, Fry. And we've got April Rain, creator of the hashtag campaign Oscar So White, vice president of content strategy for Ensemble, and co-founder of the Sista Scotus campaign, seeking to get a Black woman appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome, April. Thank you so much for having me again, Farai. So today I'm excited to talk about all things diversity and entertainment. And I can't help but think that so much of how we perceive ourselves in society and perceive things like history is also tied up with our arts and culture. And so many of the films that we're going to talk about really do have to do with the construction of identity. But I want to start with The Big Dog, which is the Academy Awards. Um, And April, you have been on the Oscars track for so long and contributed so much. There were some interesting choices. Uh, What do we know about how the Academy chose this year's nominations? And are you happy with them? Uh, To answer your second question first, no, I'm not happy. I'm never happy. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, there is every now and again some optimism, but definitely not happiness because uh, the people who go to see the films who are spending their hard-earned dollars, either they're in a movie theater, you know, post-pandemic, or using streaming services are not being represented in front of and behind the camera. So we don't know a whole bunch um, about how things were chosen because we never do. And that's part of the issue, not just with the Oscars, but with all of um, the voting bodies for films uh, every single year. Um, What we know is that the Academy me over the last five years, uh, since 2016, the second year of Oscar So White, committed to doubling the number of people of color and doubling the number of women within their ranks by 2020. And they actually met that goal. But the, the Academy membership is still overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. What we also know is that the Academy and many of the other voting bodies, I don't, I don't want to pile all of this on the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, because they're basically all in the same pot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Academy does not require its members to view performances before they vote. So if you're not watching the movie and the majority of the folks who are voting are white males, we're talking about a popularity contest, truly. Um, So there isn't any optimism, um, but I think 
slowly but surely, we are seeing some improvement because as we get newer and more diverse members within the academy body, they are being incredibly outspoken with respect to who and what they're supporting every year. What um, are we seeing, though, in terms of the nominations uh, with people of color on camera and behind the scenes? We are seeing some improvement there. So, for example, we had movies like Minari, um, which is an incredible movie with an AAPI, Asian and Asian American Pacific Islander uh, cast and crew. So in front of and behind the camera, telling the story about um, really a typical American family living in this country and trying to survive. And so that was really wonderful. Um, You know, we saw for the first time that we had more women than ever Uh, nominated as Best Directors Mm. because, you know, Oscar So White is not just about race and the Black-white binary, but also sexual orientation and gender identity and disability, all traditionally underrepresented groups. Um, We saw for the first time Black women nominated in the hair and makeup category. Um, in, in the 90 years of the Oscars, you know, we're still celebrating or at least acknowledging those first, but we know that there's much more work that needs to be done. I think that the gaze of Hollywood is so interesting, and so is the voice of Hollywood. And sometimes that voice um, really is culturally complicated. So, Casey, I'm going to turn to you. Minari, which April just referenced, won the Golden Globes for Best Foreign Film back in January. And here's a clip of what the director, Isaac Lee Chung, said during his acceptance speech. I just want to say that Minari is about a family. Uh, it's, it's a family trying to learn how to speak a language of its own. Um, it goes deeper than any American language and any foreign language. Uh, it's a language of the heart. And I, I'm trying to learn it myself and to pass it on. And I hope we'll all learn how to speak this language of love to each other. So that was, a, you know, a very deft and um, politic way of framing the value of this movie across all cultural and linguistic lines. But language became an issue in categorizing this film for awards, didn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I love the way, you know, Isaac Lee Chung referenced that in his Golden Globe speech. You know, because when any minority or disenfranchised group calls for better representation in entertainment, the essence of what they're asking for is to be seen as human. So, you know, we've referenced a lot now that Minari captures this really universal story about family. So to have that story be categorized as foreign is just the very definition of othering, especially during a time when Asian American communities across the country are fearing for their lives because hateful, racist, and xenophobic attackers see them as foreign, don't see them as human, and don't see them represented as human on screen. So to have, again, Minari being recognized, I think, is a positive thing to have Steve Yoon and um, Yejin Young nominated in the acting categories is a positive thing, especially knowing that it'll give more representation to the API community in the Academy. But again, there's still a long way to go because um, even with Parasite winning Best Picture last year, that was the first time that Korean cinema was ever Um, recognized by the Academy, even though entertainment as a whole is global and full of people of color. And the Academy really needs to continue recognizing that rather than having this be just a single moment. And the Oscars put uh, Minari in a different category than the Golden Globes for awards consideration. Is that right? 
Yes, uh, it was nominated for Best Picture and it was not nominated in Best International Film because it is an American film. April, back to you. I actually want to do something that I don't know that we've done before, which is play you a little bit of yourself because you were one of the first guests on the show for which we're grateful. And so last fall, we talked about the Oscar nomination process and you shared this. Well, you know, the Academy, the Oscars and the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes and all the rest of them, that's the end of the game. But where the real structural change needs to happen is on the page when that screenwriter sits down and says, I'm going to write the next blockbuster. So, April, you know, this is something that you have been passionately talking about. What kind of emergence of new venues do you see for people who are behind the scenes in Hollywood? Are we seeing progress there? Slowly but surely. And so the exciting part of this is that um, producers and actors and actresses are creating their own production companies, no longer waiting for a seat at the table at the big studios, you know, the 20th centuries and the Paramounts and the Universals, but creating their own production companies, um, incorporating the inclusion writer. Michael B. Jordan, for example, was an early adoptee of the inclusion writer for his production studio, Outlier Society, um, and making the films that they want to see. Uh, you know, and so by definition, they incorporate more people from marginalized and disenfranchised communities, both in front of and behind the camera. Casey, turning back to you, diversity and representation is a topic across various entertainment industries. And there was a kerfuffle recently when The weekend boycotted the Grammys in March. What do we know about that and what comparisons can or should we draw to the Oscars So White campaign that April started for film? Of course. So The weekend pledged a permanent Grammys boycott after a single Blinding Lights, which was one of the most successful songs of 2020 and part of an album that went double platinum. That didn't receive any nominations from the Recording Academy. But this boycott is more than about not receiving any recognition for his work specifically. It's about the lack of transparency on the actual nomination process and the lack of Grammy recognition in general for Black artists. That's something that obviously parallels to the Academy because there is no transparency on the nomination process and there is a history of very little recognition for artists of color. And talking more about the music industry, this also isn't the first time it's happened. You know, Kanye West and Frank Ocean have also boycotted the Grammys for the exact reason. And I think that while uh, The weekend's boycott has definitely drawn more recent attention to the issue, um, whether that leads to long-term change at the Recording Academy is up to the Recording Academy. And if they don't change, I think it really calls into question, you know, how important should the Grammys be as a marker of success? And I think the same thing is true of the Academy. Um, you know, if we continually have to ask for representation or, um, you know, create our own seats at the table, I think it creates this conversation of, you know, maybe we should also create new markers of success um, that recognize our artistry. And let's remember that in uh, hip hop, you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince boycotted the Grammys decades ago because the hip hop award wasn't going to be televised. And that obviously led to some changes with, within the Grammys. Um, and, and so voices are necessary. You know, I wish there had been more support for the weekend's boycott. Yeah, I was just looking at one of the articles about the weekend's boycott and 
there was a USC Annenberg inclusion initiative study that found that Black performers are about 38% of artists on the Billboard Hot 100, but they have just been um, 24% of the Grammy nominees um, this year and 27% year to year. I mean, in the end, April, isn't this really about money? That if you win awards, that brings you shine, that can bring you money, and that the award systems are a way of moving capital in the end. It's always about money. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's the bottom line. And, and that is the way that structural change is made. However, um, you know, moving back to film, because that, that's where I'm most comfortable, yeah. um, you know, it it doesn't always translate mm-hmm. into money. It, it means money for the studio that has made the film, but it doesn't necessarily mean increased opportunities for those who actually win the awards. You know, Halle Berry, um, very famously, even recently, you know, this was the year, I think the maybe the 20th year of um, yeah, anniversary of her winning the first and only Oscar ever given to a Black woman in the Best Actress category. And she has been very transparent about saying that doors were not open to her. Um, And and the fact that Viola Davis still has to audition for roles Mm. is beyond me. Just, you know, ask her how much she wants, double it, (laughs) and and sign the contract. That's the way it should be in my head. Um, So, you know, that's part of the problem, that one would think that you know, opportunities because you're an Oscar nominee or a Grammy nominee or an Emmy nominee uh, would just flow like water, but they do not. And so then the question becomes, what good are these awards um, if they're only for the gatekeepers? Because the gatekeeper can say, oh, my studio won an Oscar for, you know, or someone, if you know, working with my studio won for this performance. That maybe allows them to get more things greenlit, but not the actual people who are doing the work, the producers, the actors, the cinematographers, and so on. So this may sound super basic, but why do awards even matter? Like, what's the deal? Casey? You know, when I look at um, Oscar nominations and Oscar wins throughout history, I do see them and historians do see them as like markers of what the time period is like. And if we don't adequately represent, you know, artists of color, we're not accurately looking at history. Mm, Yeah. April, what about you? Yeah, I I think that is exactly right. I'm not sure that they are as relevant as some people would want them to believe, (laughs) Mm. would want all of us to believe, Uh, you know, but... As of right now, you know, when we talk about the Oscars and the Grammys and the Emmys, they are still considered the pinnacle in film, in music and in TV. And so one wants to be recognized and acknowledged by their peers, you know, with the most pinnacle award that there is, even if it's just something that's going to sit on your shelf and unfortunately may not lead to the opportunities that we would like. And Casey, as you think about the world of entertainment, including the world of awards, what are you looking forward to or looking for um, in terms of the ways that not only the entertainment industry itself, but entertainment media makers like you can respond to our times? So I think one of the best places I'm seeing improvement is like the development of consultation roles, I guess. You know, as someone who covers the industry, I find a lot of value in following groups like Color of Change, which has been doing amazing work analyzing how cop shows and crime dramas 
warp audience perceptions of the criminal justice system. There's this organization called Hollywood Health and Society that provides health and science experts to make sure writers are accurately tackling issues like climate change or HIV and AIDS. And Define American, which was founded by Jose Antonio Vargas, you know, does a lot of work making sure that immigration storylines on film and television are accurate and human. And all of those groups and the experts that do this consulting work, you know, really do help better representation on screen. And I would hope in the writer's room, too. And I think they really show that you don't have to be entrenched in the Hollywood system. You know, you don't have to be. Um, an established writer or an actor to make positive change and get this done. And and April, wrapping up with you, um, any other thoughts on some unsung MVPs in the entertainment industry, whether it's groups like Color of Change or, you know, certainly people like yourself with Oscars So White, but who comes to mind? Uh, you know, Charles King at Macro is doing an amazing work, um, and he has just announced that there is that he's been funded um, to the tune of, I believe, ten million dollars, and that money is going to go directly into the communities of marginalized people to make films. Mm. And you know, very near, if not at the top of my list, is Franklin Leonard and the Blacklist, who has been working for years and years um, to allow screenwriters to have their work seen and reviewed by others. And in fact, um, a film that was previously on the Blacklist is now nominated for an Oscar. Uh, And so you can see the clear trajectory there. You know, what I think we're seeing is that, again, people are taking uh, the reins in their own hands. You know, nobody's coming to save us. We know that the studios are all run by white men uh, and and who are resistant to change and who do still in some cases don't believe um, that films can travel and that films can translate. And, you know, we've got Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians and Coco and so many others to indicate factually that that's not true. Uh, but apparently they're okay with leaving money on the table. And and it's unfortunate because I think as we see uh, the uptick in streaming services, especially when we were all home for this past year with the pandemic, um, that film is becoming much more accessible to those who may not have pockets as deep as the big studios. That's fantastic. And we're going to have to leave it there for now. So it was great talking with you, April. Thank you. Always a pleasure to chop it up with you, Farai. And thank you, Casey. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mix this episode. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, Natina Bean, and Sarah McClure. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, from the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, from Be Me Community, a network designed to build caring and prosperous communities inspired by Black people, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.